Hello everyone, welcome to SNIT. Studies in National and International Development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNIT has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. Please share our podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. We're glad to have you with us. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the first SNED uh, Studies in National and International Development event of 2021-2022 academic year. Uh, on behalf of co-chairs, myself, Aicha Tomac, and Carolyn Prouse, and coordinate, our coordinator, Dairon Perez, I welcome you to the longest running inter interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNED has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. And this year is no exception, exception uh, as we start with two sessions on vaccine equity in Canada and next around the world. Uh, I will post this term's lineup uh, on, the on the chat shortly. SNED is hosted by Queen's University, uh, which sits on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabeg Nation, and continues to benefit from ongoing colonization. Uh, for instance, in the forms of extractions of resources, knowledges, and practices of indigenous peoples, not only in Kataraki, Kingston, but around the Turtle Island. On behalf of Synod hosts who are settlers on this land, I would like to reiterate that Synod is committed to amplify the voices of scholars, activists, and artists who study, work, and create uh, towards dismantling white supremacy and settler colonialism. This term, uh, we made the hard decision to continue our sessions, our series uh, online on Zoom, Given the lineup uh, of our speakers and the topics we usually cover, this platform requires us to take a couple of extra precautions to prevent online harassment and violence. If you would like to speak with or without your video on, please directly message to one of us, the hosts. You are free to use the chat function uh, during the session, which will be closely monitored by us as the hosts. The session will be recorded and you can find the recording in our podcast hosted by CFRC. And we again, thank CFRC for uh, hosting our podcast. Today, we are privileged to welcome Selena Cesar Chavan, who is a business consultant, coach, and an international speaker, and currently serves part-time as the senior advisor EDI initiatives at Health Sciences and a fellow adjunct lecturer at Queen's University. She was the former member of parliament for Whitby, parliamentary secretary to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and parliamentary secretary for international development. She has a Bachelor of Science, an MBA in healthcare management, and an executive MBA from the Rutland School of Management. Her new memoir, Can You Hear Me Now, uh, was published by Penguin Random House Canada in February 2021 and was selected as a finalist for the 2021 Sean Cohen Prize for Political Writing and a book award finalist for the Speaker of Ontario Legislature. Today, we will have a discussion on her role in Black Scientists Task Force on Vaccine Equity. Welcome, Selena. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It is, it's such a pleasure to, um, to be here. Um, and I just wanna start off by saying that I am speaking to you today 
from my home in Whitby. I, um, unlike a lot of, um, I keep hearing that people say, you know, are you going to move to Kingston? Are you going to move to Kingston? And uh, I did actually move to Kingston, um, but I'm there part-time just like I am in my role at Queens. Um, but my internet is more stable here. So, <laughs> so I'm here today uh, in order to make sure that I give this presentation as, um, as best I can. I'm going to share my screen and hopefully this will go. And, um, view and present. Okay, so hopefully everybody sees a picture with my smiling face and it looks like a little bit of a roller coaster. Thank you very much. So um, I wanted to start today's um, conversation um, basically talking about the fact that I am part-time at Queens. And, um, you know, when I first started working, my, my 16, well, 17 year old said to me, oh, you're at Queens, well, what do you, are you a professor? I said, no, no. She said, well, what do you, what do, you do there? I said, well, I'm a senior advisor for equity, diversity, inclusion. And she said, they pay you for that? <laughs> I said, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, protect black women, make sure we're paid for our work. Um, and she said, oh, and it, it dawned on me when she said they pay you for that, just how much my children, and I think a lot of our young people understand equity and that equity is a decision that is made in every aspect of your life. And so, you know, when people say to me, oh, it's really hard to, to get rid of racism, sort of, it doesn't have to be. It's by by choice, by design, that it's hard. It's by design, you know, that sexism and homophobia and other forms of discriminatory practices exist. It's by design um, and by choice. And so I'm part time at Queens, and in as much as they, you know, people keep asking me to stay full time and to become full time permanent, I have chosen not to do that because I feel that if I did come here full-time permanent, that I wouldn't believe in the work that I did. I wouldn't believe in the fact that we could get to equitable outcomes. And so as a form of protest, I am here only part-time at Queens um, because I, I believe that eventually I should work my way out of a job as we go forward. So I'm gonna start this talk in, um, and I'm gonna put my timer on because as a former politician, I could talk for a very, very long time. I do want to leave some, some time for question and answer. And I'm going to go through these slides relatively quickly. So I'll talk for about uh, 30 minutes now, 32 minutes, and leave about 20 minutes for questions and answer. Um, but I, I just wanted to give you a little bit of context of my life and opening up with that story. Because um, whether I'm up, up, you know working in parliament or on the vaccination task force, or at Queens, I think there's a fundamental principle that I live by, and that is around transformative leadership. And transformative leaders 
leadership requires, and I love this, this definition by Carolyn Shields, it requires a leader to have a clear sense of their values and beliefs that undergird their own identity. It provides, it provides that foundation to their identity so that they're able to take stands that require moral courage, to live with tension and not be afraid to have awkward conversations as we need to have in 2021 and beyond, and to engage in activism and advocacy. It, not just within our organizations and our community and locally, but globally as well. We have a lot of wicked problems in our world and I'll get to some of those later, but if we are not willing to take the stance that require moral courage, if we're not willing to live with tension and to engage in that activism for the most vulnerable in our world, for the poorest and most vulnerable, then who will? If not you, who, if not now, when? And each of us have the capacity and the capability to do so, even in our little way. Um, it is what we do when we are standing behind someone in line at a grocery who's, you know, pulling out the pennies to pay for cat food and they don't have a cat. And are we disgruntled or are we supportive or are we empathetic? And do we have the empathetic courage to act then? And do we have the empathetic courage to then act when we're talking about geopolitical issues. And this is where I want us to think about transformative leadership. And so most of you know me for my, my life in politics. There was a whole series of life that I left, I lived before that, but nobody remembers that. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I got into politics in 2015. I entered bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. 2017, I was really searching for my purpose, really searching for, okay, I've been an entrepreneur. I, I'm now in politics. What is my place for having impact? Where do I, what makes me click? What makes me passionate? What makes me like come alive? And I realized in 2018 that, you know, my passion is people and ensuring that there's equitable outcomes for people, especially those with multiple intersecting identities who are often the poorest and most vulnerable in the world and will be at the center of most of our geopolitical and social um, shocks to our, our world and our environment. And then in 2019, I sat as an independent, but I didn't need politics to realize that I am independent. I've been independent my whole life. And in 2020, I saw this picture and it, it actually took me back because I looked at it and thought, first of all, who was in my office the whole time that I was in politics that they saw this? And how were they able to summarize my four years in politics in one picture, in a caricature? And it's called The Problem Woman of Color in the Workplace. And it's, a, it's um, developed by the Safe House Progressive Alliance for Nonviolence. And when I looked at this picture, I was, I was really shocked. And so I posted it on my Instagram page and, you know, other individuals, not just women, not just women with intersecting identities, but other individuals, no matter how they identified, looked at this picture and said, Selena, this is me. This is me and my work. This is me and my school. This is me and my current and present situation where, you know, a, a woman of color or a, a, a person with intersecting identities enters into a space, is really like excited about being in that space, um, uh, you know, quickly sort of realizes that perhaps they're a diversity hire or a tokenized hire and, um, and has, a, you know, 
has a, a, a sort of moment where they're like, no, no, maybe this is going to be good. And everybody's like, oh, of course, it's going to be good. You'll be just fine. And, um, you know, when I got into politics, I, I started, you know, thinking that I could really make a mark by talking about issues like mental health, talking about issues like um, like racial justice. And the reality set in that, you know, as I started to find my click, as I started to find my group and what I'm passionate about speaking up about these these issues, um, started to get that retaliation, started to get that sort of, um, you know, we want to be bold, but not that much. Uh, and so, you know, I was basically told, you know, to get on board and to figure myself out. And that was a very easy decision for me to do, um, to figure myself out because of transformative leadership, because I understand my values and beliefs and they're anchored by the, the experience that I brought into my life. So it was easy for me to make a decision to leave um, that particular situation. But there's a, a line somewhere in here where most people have an opportunity to make a choice. And I said earlier that I'm at Queen's part time in protest. Um, and there's there's a line here that people could, could uh, easily draw in the middle of the page where they say, okay, I'm not going to speak up and I'm going to be what they call sort of the model minority. I'm going to sit quietly. I'm going to do what I need to do. I'm going to work. I'm going to not make too much noise. I'm going to not be disruptive. Or on the other side where I did, I continue to speak up and I'm continue to be disruptive. And, and there's a lot of room in between. Let me just say that, but I'm just going to, for the ease of argument, say that there's two sides and on this side, be disruptive and speak up and speak out and, you know, try to break or bend the status quo. Both of those outcomes have come with a cost. And the, even as the model minority, you lose part of yourself, you lose who you are, you lose a little bit of make what the, the identity related expertise, experience and knowledge that you bring to any organization and environment that you're in. All of that identity related expertise, experience and knowledge has value and therefore is an asset. And if you're leaving part of it behind, so in order for you to accommodate this space, that is a cost. On the other side, where you are disruptive and have to leave, I left a job that I really loved. When you have to leave that organization, that is also a cost. Um, my cost also was what would happen to me after, what would happen to my children after if you stand up to anyone. And I actually calculated the cost of, you know, that I would never be able to work another day in Canada again. And I said to you know myself, is can I can I live with that cost, that tangible cost? And I said, yeah, let's just do it. And um it came to fruition that between October 2019, after I left, and October 2020, I could not find a job with two MBAs as a co-chair of a national epidemiology study on neurological conditions, as a political background of all that stuff, I could not find a job. And the only reason I am at Queens and I'll forever be grateful is because Dr. Jane Philpott hired me. She is an ally in the greatest sense of the word. And it makes me very emotional because when, when people say, how do I be an ally? What should I do? Be like Jane. It's, it's really that simple. And so I bring that exit 
exit with me. And I bring all of that experience that I have into the city of Toronto vaccine task force. And initially when I was asked to be a part of this task force, I was, I was nervous because I was vaccine hesitant. Um, I'd worked in clinical trials for uh, a decade. I'd owned a, a research company, Resolve Research Solutions, that not only co-chaired epidemiolo national epidemiology studies, but managed clinical trials for large pharmaceutical companies. I know how long it takes to bring drugs to market. I know what it costs to bring drugs to market. And one day we were in a pandemic and the next day there was a vaccine. And I just thought, what? <laughs> something is not right here. <laughs> what did they put in that vaccine? And so I was very hesitant to take it. And so when they asked me to be on the vaccine task force, I said, well, you know me, I hope you know what you're getting into. I'm going to be very honest with people. And I'm not sure if I want to take the vaccine right now. They said, no, 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 we want you because you have your background in clinical research. We want to make sure that people, that you talk to people about informed consent and how to um, get the information that they need to make a decision and outweigh the way the risks and the benefits. And so I said, okay. And then I sat with these really incredible people who are a lot smarter than I am. And they told me about the fact that the vaccine had been in development since SARS, since, since way before, you know, um, uh, the last few months. And, you know, I started looking into the clinical trials and how diverse for the first time ever, I've seen the diversity that took place within the clinical research. And I got a lot of my questions answered and immediately fell in love with this program and come becoming a part of the, the, this program. And these are slides from the city of Toronto. So I do apologize for the, um, the amount of content here, but, um, becoming a part of this program quickly realized that the importance of being a part of this task force and to look at the disparity between um, racialized people in the city of Toronto um, versus, versus their counterparts when it comes to uh, COVID-19. And I'll just present a little bit of information because I think it's important for context. Um, why we we need to do this and why I'm I'm proud to be a part of this particular program and I'm of course many people know that I'm very critical of politicians but um uh city of Toronto if anybody's read Ibram X Kendi's book how to be anti-racist um we make decisions every single day that either bring equity into systems or situations or further perpetuate inequity when the city of Toronto in April of 2020 and the province of Ontario had an opportunity to choose whether to collect race-based data, the city of Toronto, um, sorry, to collect race-based data based on the fact that coming in from the US, we were hearing that black individuals were being disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, not because the di disease is racist, but because some of the social determinants of health and the systems that underpin those social determinants of health have a very racist, racist infrastructure. And those kinds of, of systems, housing, education, access, um, further advance or make it easier for the, the disease to spread in those regions. And so, um, so in, in April of 2020, the city of Toronto and the government of, of Ontario had an, a choice to make. The government of Ontario decided it was not gonna collect race-based data, while the city of Toronto did collect race-based data. And we saw 
that people of color and in particular black individuals were having a much harder time with COVID-19. In fact, dying at a rate much higher where our white counterparts were dying, you know, at 16 per, um, uh, I, sorry, I forget the number that it is per what, whatever number that is. Um, we were dying at a rate of 32 per X number. And, um, that is based on a number of factors, but during our town halls, we were able to um, really start to talk to people about vaccine hesitancy and about uh, trying to get vaccinated. And I think we were, we were quite su successful, um, sometimes in some town halls, increasing the answers to saying, yes, I will va get vaccinated to 100% in some of these, in some of these town halls. And, um, you know, just just some of the the really interesting statistics. You know, um, you know, you might want to think of you know why are are individuals not wanting to get vaccinated? Well, you know, there is there is historical context. You know, Tuskegee, Harrietta Lacks, um, these evidence of black individuals being used for science without being compensated, without receiving informed consent. But that is not just a historical context that has its present day manifestations in racism that exists in the healthcare system. And 54% of black Canadians export experiencing discrimination in the past year, 53% of indigenous Canadians experiencing um, discrimination in the past, in the, in the past year. Th these numbers are not just you know, stats, they are people who have not been able to live their full healthy lives because of some of, of a barrier because of something that is structurally wrong um and you know it's, it's something that we need to we need to look into whether we look at our our banking system we've seen you know the hemp farmer story with cbc we've seen indigenous people being arrested in banks you know whether we're talking about our healthcare system they are um experiencing things differently. Um, and that's something that we really need to, we really need to take a look at. And so um, some of the issues that came up during these uh, town halls uh, is around immunization coverage. Are we able to get people immunized who need to get immunized at, um, at the, the appropriate rate, at the appropriate access point? Are they going to have access to be able to do that um, because there are increased rates of positivity, hospitalization and death, as I mentioned. And so one of the recommendations is that, you know, we had ring, we have ring fencing around, um, about, around these communities. And we saw today the, um, the city of Toronto come out with micro clinics to be uh, administering vaccines you know, at parks or TTC or at schools, um, really making an effort based on some of our recommendations to ensure that community groups get uh, the vaccinations that they need. Of course, a big sore spot has been the inadequate number of six days and in income support, especially for those who are racialized and especially for those who are racialized women. And, um, 
you know, we've, we've, we know that these individuals who are often um, from Nigeria, from, from the continent, from um, Jamaica, from Haiti, um, they're women, they can't take risk with their money. They can't say, well, you know, COVID-19 is killing people out there, but I ain't going to go to work today. They got to go to work, even when they're not feeling well. Again, these are people and we really need to think about um, who they are. And so one of the, uh, again, recommendations is was to immediately institute 10, six days to expand CERB um, and to recommend uh, sustainable wraparound supports um, through an equitable through an equitable lens, and um, you know it's I I I think that people with privilege, and if anybody's on this call, what time is it? At one thirty in the afternoon on a Thursday, um, if you're able to be listening to me on this, we have privilege. And therefore, we, should, we have privilege and we have a certain degree of power. And if we're not using our privilege and power to call things out when we know that they are wrong, then why do we have it? <laughs> we have to recognize we have it and then we have to use it to, to speak up. Uh, another issue that came up was a high level of mistrust in mainstream institutions, especially healthcare. I spoke to that you know, historical context, um, you know, the question of why should I listen to people who don't listen to me when I tell them about ra the racism I deal with? Why should I listen to, you know, people that tell me to go get vaccinated when I, when I go to the, the, the uh, you know, a healthcare space and they're dismissing me? And I mean, I've been in healthcare spaces with you know, two children that have Kawasaki disease, which is rare in a black family. And when I brought my son in, who's, you know, my daughter had it and then my son 10 years later, and I'm telling the doctor, you know, he does have Kawasaki. I know I'm presenting on day four. This is what he has. He had these classic symptoms. And they looked at me and said, yeah, but he's not red. And I had to like laugh and say, can you point me in the direction of where you've seen a black black skin that is red? And they sort of like were taken aback. And I said, my son's skin is red. You may not have ever seen it before, but I'm his mother. And if you look closely enough, you will see that he has those distinctive Kawasaki blotches. And so those levels of mistrust um, exist. And we had to elevate the um, the conversation around um, vaccination uh, through trusted, reliable sources, and so forth. The, the the task force was formed um, with people who are way, way, way smarter than I am about vaccines and how they work and what they do and all of the other things that go around it. And so um, that really helped, and as I said earlier, helped some people who were feeling um, uh, that mistrust to go and then get vaccinated. Um, we talked about uh, race-based data, that issue came up. And of course, we've made the recommendation to continue to collect race-based data, um, to hope that our federal government, we just completed a census that did not collect any uh, race-based data or demographic data, which was really disappointing since we have made investments in Statistics Canada of millions of dollars to do so. Um, 
that data I know can be used inappropriately, but in this case, we were able to target very specific resources to communities that we knew needed it the most because we had the data um, collected. Uh, when it comes to uh, mental health, we, we know that gender-based violence, mental health, those types of social problems are increased among racialized people, um, especially the black community. And we've asked for um, investments. We've asked for funding for culturally safe um, service delivery across the province and at the federal level. Um, and uh, this one in particular is really important. Um, the shortage of vaccines across home countries for for uh, families of Black Torontonians. Um, if we only vaccinate ourselves, we will never end COVID-19. Much to the chagrin of many, I think, borders do not have walls. And so we cannot just expect that we vaccinate ourselves and everybody will be okay. And the conversation right now has turned to, you know, do we give the booster shot when we know that there are some places in the world that are not getting their first shot yet? Do we do we do that? And I think it's a warranted conversation to have and, and how we vaccinate, who we vaccinate um, at this point, it's, a, it's an important conversation to have. So with all that in mind, you know, I wanna get back to sort of the transformative leadership and, and my role at Queens, my role sort of in a number of different areas, you know, as a disruptor, as a, as a transformative leader, transformative leaders, everybody on this call can choose to challenge, can choose to see some of these inequities and challenge them to break that glass ceiling. But if you stand close enough to the, the glass ceiling to break it, the glass is gonna fall somewhere and you're gonna get cut. So you can't be afraid to get cut. You can't be afraid to bend the status quo. You can't be um, afraid to, uh, to get hurt. You have to choose to disrupt. You have to choose to, to challenge. And I say that my, my values and principles, if anybody has, has read my book, can you hear me now? People ask me, you know, why did I write it the way I did? Why did I write it? as vulnerable as I did? Why did I expose so many truths about myself um, that were painful and shameful and I felt guilty about? And it's because I want people to understand that my values and principles are anchored by my pain. I don't feel sympathy for individuals who are experiencing very ex extreme challenges. I actually empathize with them as much as I can because I know what pain feels like. I know what hurt feels like. I know what it's like to be left behind. I know what it's like to feel like the mistakes I've made are, are going to make me lose everything. I know what that feels like. I also know what it feels like to have somebody who came in and saved me or told me something that allowed me to turn that around. And so that is why I'm so passionate about the things that I do. And you know, why do we need people to do this? Why do I continue to do this, this work? It's because the urgency of now demands it. It's not just the, the pandemic that has promoted um, inequity. It, it has already existed in everyday microaggressions, whether racial or gendered or um, related to disability. They have, they exist, they hurt, they cause physical, mental, emotional trauma, according to the American Psychological Association. They are devastating. 
Um, you know, when we think about pay inequity, <laughs> I'm sorry, why is it that I have to wait you know, 100 years as a black woman to get pay equity? You know, it, you know, the argument can be made, well, you're going to get equity. Sister, come on, you're going to get equity. You just have to wait 100 years. What's 100 years between friends, right? You're going to get it, but you just got to wait. Why do we have to wait as women, uh, white women up to 40 years, black women up to 100 years, you know, um, uh, um, Hispanic, Asian women, uh, indigenous women, 200 years for pay equity? Why in 2021 do we still have gendered washrooms? After 2020, when we told everybody to just wash your hands, why do we still have gendered washrooms? Why, do we, why are we asking people to choose why are we telling people that they don't belong in our institutions? And why are our systems, and I talked about COVID itself not being racist, but our systems built on structures of oppression and racism. The child welfare system, for example, this is a picture from the Ontario Association of Children's Aid Societies. And I apologize that it's small, but everybody has Google. You could look up this picture yourself. Um, the way Black children enter the services they receive in the system and how they are exited out of the system are disproportionate and inadequate compared to their white counterparts. I mean, if that doesn't make you want to cry, if that doesn't make you angry, what does? 2020, 2021 wasn't just a series of historical moments, they were a call to action. The poorest and most vulnerable who happen to look like me in the world have multiple intersecting identities and they will be at the intersection, right at the middle, at the nexus of racial inequality, a global pandemic, climate change, a refugee crisis and any other geopolitical crisis, the person that will be left behind is the person with multiple intersecting identities. Who is going to look out for them? Who is going to say, let's not leave them behind? Who? And so people say to me, you know, aren't you afraid that you're gonna be, you know, the angry black woman trope? <laughs> well, I am angry and I happen to be black. And I also happen to be a woman. So say what you want. You're going to talk about me anyway. But I'm going to give you something good to talk about. <laughs> because I'm angry because not only do all of these sort of barriers and equity inequities, are they just wrong, but they've costed our society. Right now, when we're thinking about economic recovery post-pandemic, and we're trying to figure out what to do, well, Let's just start with equity. Like, you know, uh, yes, we could think about green innovation and we could talk about all of these other things. But McKinsey, when they did their report in 2015 and found that giving women the tools to reach their full potential will add 12 to $28 trillion to our global GDP. That is a 26% increase in our global GDP by 2025. Don't you think it's just worth it to say, let's just give it a try?
When McKinsey did the same report in 2019 before 2020 and found that racial inequality cost the United States between one to $1.5 trillion by 2028, which is 6% of their GDP. Don't we think we should try the other side of that coin? And if it's gonna cost our world and it's gonna cost the US, what is it costing Queens? What is it costing your organization? What is it costing you? And these are the things that we really need to think about. And so the world needs us to show up. The world needs us to be intentional, deliberative, substantive. It just needs us to act. Whether you are an ally, whether you're in this situation, just needs us to act. And one of my favorite books is Faces at the Bottom of the Well by Derek Bell. I should have put up my own book, but I'll do that later. Faces at the Bottom of the Well by Derek Bell. This book is just, I'm in love with it. And um, in it, he talks about the struggle to maintain a commitment, the courageous struggle, no matter the odds, to maintain a commitment to civil rights by Dr. Martin Luther King. This man's house was bombed. He was jailed. He had all kinds of ways and reasons for saying, you know what, forget it. I'm going to just take it easy for the rest of my life. <laughs> Part of that struggle was that need for Dr. King to speak the truth. Sorry. To speak the truth as Dr. King viewed it, even when that truth alienated, rather than unified, upset minds, rather than calmed hearts, and subjected the speaker to general censure rather than the acclaim. And I think I'm upset because I know, I, I haven't lived Dr. King's life, let me just get that clear, <laughs> but I know what it's like to sort of stand alone on the right side of history and be deathly afraid of what, the circumstances and the consequences would be. But the world needs us to show up. It needs us to show up in a way that we have to be unapologetic and unafraid to stand, to stand on those values and beliefs and to take the stands that require moral courage, to live with tension and to, to some degree engage in activism and advocacy. And so my challenge to you is what's next? What do you choose to challenge? What do you choose to disrupt? Because we all have the capacity and capability to be transformative leaders. We all have stories that are very sticky. And so we need to tell ours, but most importantly, develop the, the capacity to listen. Listening to each other allows us to then um, get that empathetic courage to, to act, to live and let those around you live authentically. Every single identity related uh, knowledge, expertise and experience is, is valuable and therefore is an asset to any policy, product, service, institution, organization that you are a part of. Leadership does not require a title and your value has never been determined by a title. My leadership does not come with parliamentary secretary. It does not come with MP. It has always been ordinary people that have done extraordinary things to change the world. It is time that we do that. 
And lastly, and most importantly, I would never have entered into politics if I didn't open myself up to the universe of opportunities. And so I invite you to do the same. And it is 1.40 exactly. And I will take questions if there are any. Thank you so much, Selena. Um, a round of applause, definitely. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and then I will open the floor to questions from our audience or comments or sharing stories. I think Matthew has a question. Matthew, do you want to unmute and just go ahead? Uh, just uh, thank you for that presentation. Uh, it's very moving. Just uh, what can we do to get international action to get Canada online to, uh, to make the vaccine available worldwide? Uh, how do we get relief from patent protection? And how do we fund, help countries fund uh, the production of vaccines? That's that's Matthew started off with let's like save the world today. <laughs> it's a powerful question, Matthew. And you know, um we are in the throes of an election right now. And so it's it's really a wait and see moment to see which leader is going to um be at the helm. But I'm I'm how do I answer this? The democracy, democracy, the word democracy comes from two Greek words, um, demos and kratos, meaning the power of the people. And um, I believe in that. I, I, I believe it fundamentally that the, the power has always lied with the people. It is whether or not, like I said earlier, the people decide that they'll use that power. Is it important enough for us to talk about? Is it important enough for us to join the voices of others even on social media, and I, 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 I don't agree with this whole thing that you can't, you know, um, some people are comfortable just tweeting or putting things out on social media. Social media is a powerful tool to get our messages across. But I think that more people need to be engaged and talking and asking and demanding that we are equitable in how we distribute vaccines. And I know Canada has, um, been somewhat of a leader in this. I say somewhat because um, we, we know that there were uh, some challenges around accessing vaccines and, and the route that we went to try to get more, secure more vaccines. Um, but the people need to make that demand. Canada represents uh, the Caribbean islands to the World Bank. They represent um, uh, the Caribbean islands on a couple of uh, international bodies. And it's important that we use our voice on that international platform to help those small island developing states. And if Canadians are not saying, yes, we support that action. Yes, not only do, do we support it, but we demand it. We are safer as Canadians when we do that. So it might be in our own self-interest. Um, I don't think we're going to get a lot of traction on that post-September 20th. 
uh, because we are really focused on dom domestic economic recovery and we'll need we'll need each other to amplify that voice for those who are um, for those who are from those other communities and diaspora communities. Well, thank you, Selena. And Matthew, you know, our next session will be about, uh, um, you know, it will be on global vaccine equity or inequity. So, you know, I also, you know, invite you personally right now to that one as well. Um, next, uh, Rebecca and then Carolyn. Oh, hi. Um, thank you, Selena, for that presentation. It was, well, I mean, I don't really have words, I feel. It was like super interesting. And I guess I'm thinking about, you know, you mentioned your kids and I'm thinking about my own daughter and I'm wondering how do we encourage our kids to be transformative leaders? Like what are the sort of practices or uh, like how can we sort of support them in, in being sort of the leaders that they are today, but for future as well? Uh, let them be. <laughs> um, you know, every now and again, so I'm from a Caribbean family, very strict upbringing, um, and I know others could identify, but I, I'm just going to speak to myself, very strict upbringing. We, we did not engage in conversation, never mind talking back, but it wasn't a, we, we didn't have conversation. My parents said you did, right? <laughs> That's it. And so, you know, with my own children, we have those conversations and every now and again, especially with my, she's 17 now with my 17 year old, when she was growing up, I'd have to say to her, you're coming dangerously close to that line between being confident in your position and being rude. So let's step a little bit away from the line and let's engage in this conversation again, right? Because they, they get all this emotion, they get all, you know, amped up on, on issues. And I just let them, I let them be, I let them travel, I let them see the world, I let them, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, my 17-year-old was 15 and she, uh, she was in Australia with another 15-year-old friend and I was just like, when, when the prime minister said all Canadians should return home, I was just like, what kind of mother sends their 15 year old to Australia? Like who parents these children? Um, and we called her and said, okay, you gotta get home right now. And she was like, no, I was like, no, no, no. I, that's just not me. The prime minister said, you gotta get home. She's like, no, I'm on Bondi beach. I'm going to have fun. And I was like, no, no, we're not doing this. Um, so every now and again, I have to actually like really, really parent um, and my 22 year old at the time, 20 was in the UK. So I had two children out of the country. And I only say that because they, they have to live. Right. And so in as much as I try to protect them as much as possible, giving them that view of the world and letting them know that something else exists beyond their four block radius. There are people that are poorer. There are people that are richer. Stops them from chasing the next thing that they do and allows them to focus a little bit on the, what they could do in the present to, um, to be that transformative leader. What they could do in the present in their schools to talk about equity, 
you know, how they could teach us about equity. I mean, the conversation about pronouns in our house ended up being a three hour conversations with people crying and there was some yelling and it was, it was very interesting and it was very dynamic and just opening that space, but also opening the space to let them know that there's more to life than just what they see here or what they see when they, you know, travel into Toronto or they see, you know, let them explore that indigenous communities. What is, what is like to not just be able to go turn on your tap, fill a glass of water and, you know, sit. What, what that power is like, what, what the power is of turning on your tap, what the privilege is to do that. And um, I think just exposing them to that and letting them have those conversations, letting them lead at home prepares them to lead out there. Um, I'm, I'm in um, Deepak Chopra's uh, course right now on, on wellness and well-being. And they talk, of, we're, we're going through the Ayurvedic practices. And one of the things that they say is that the microcosm is the macrocosm. And if we don't recognize that the, the things that we do, even in our own house, is what happens outside and what happens outside is brought into our house. So preparation of our children within our house to be leaders here prepares them for out there. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, thank you so much, Asena. Uh, Carolyn? Hi, sorry, my fan just turned on. It might be very loud. I don't have much control over it in my office here. Um, thank you so much, Lena, for such a wonderful talk. Uh, really inspiring. And I do like how you laid out transformative, um, transformative leadership, but that also connects to transformative justice as well, I think. Um, so my question, you haven't touched on it specifically, but I'm interested in, in these town halls that you were conducting, if there were any, um, any conversation around vaccine passports and like if there was hesitancy around vaccinations and potentially around passports of what, what the sentiment was, if there was any about, about that. Um, there is a huge conversation about that because we have to have this conversation even as, as black individuals, understanding our power and privilege. And to know that there are some communities, the, the reason why our federal pr prisons are over capacity with, um, oh my God, I'm forgetting my words, but um, full of black and indigenous individuals is because there's over surveillance of black and indigenous communities already. Now you're asking for a passport to go into a restaurant or a sporting event. Let me just be clear, we're not white. So whereas white people could say, you know, stand at the door and argue and say, we don't wanna, we don't need to get vaccinated. We don't, I don't need to show you my passport and could get very belligerent about it as we've seen on the campaign trail and in front of hospitals. If that was us, <laughs> we can't do that. And if we do, the outcomes are very, very, very different. And so, um, and, and, and people may think that we don't live in the United States and, you know, things are not that bad. We know that that is not true. 
And so when we think about vaccine passports, we have to be very, very, very careful about further perpetuating an, an, an equity or an inequity problem that already exists. It existed through carding. We know what that is like. This is the exact same experiment um, that can have exa the exact same outcomes where people end up losing their jobs, um, And so the question then is, you know, what are the other options? Well, there are other options around rapid testing. And, and I, I understand this is a very tricky conversation because we are trying to save our communities. We're trying to empower ourselves. We're trying, especially within black communities to say that we have the power to change the trajectory and the outcome of this for black individuals. So I'm vaccinated, not just to protect me, but to protect our communities as well, especially the most vulnerable. And you know, vaccines do that. But at the same time, I understand the need or the conversation around vaccine passports. But if it's not done with a tremendous amount of due diligence, it is going to, um, people are going to die. And, and not necessarily by just being, you know, killed, but the, the long-term impact of that, of that further perpetuating um, the disparity that has grown out of COVID, it will continue through not being able to get a job, education, access issues are going to grow. And that's something that we really, we need to be very, very careful about when we talk about somebody having to show something in order to be able to do something, especially as critical as their, as their own livelihoods, like their jobs. Thank you. Uh, I will read a question from the chat for the recording. Uh, this comes from Sophie. I'm wondering how we can be transformative leaders when we work within systems such as education and healthcare that are really resistant to change. And in ways, as you have experienced, that are sometimes especially hostile to BIPOC and other populations. I will be honest, I'm often scared to raise my voice. Yes, so I, I do a whole uh, lesson on the strategy of disruption. And um, because people say to me, well, Celine, I'm not like you. I can't just go out there and say what I want to say. I'm afraid. And that is, that's perfectly okay. But one of the things that we saw post 2020 was a beautiful execution of the strategy of disruption, where we have to understand that love them or hate them, not, I don't really care to argue that, Black Lives Matter, um, the women that started that movement actually put their necks on the line. And there's some people that will do that. They put their, their necks on the line to say, there is a problem here and we need to deal with it. And from that, we got people to come out and start to protest from before George Floyd, but let's just use George Floyd as an example. People came out to protest and there are some people that would say, I'm not good at protest. So you have Black Lives Matter, the people that are gonna yell and scream and stop traffic. And then you have people who are going to go to the protest. Then you have people who are going to say, okay, well, I see what Black Lives Matter and the protesters are doing. I'm going to stay in my job and I'm going to do the process and planning, process and planning on how do we get the policy changes to happen. They're not out in the streets. 
but they're doing the work. And then you have the legislators, le legislators who say, you know what, we're going to take that stuff from the process of planning people and we're going to do stuff. And then you're going to meet a barrier, right, where the legislator says we're not doing it. And then you're going to call in a Selena who's like, oh, hell no, you're not. And then we're going to start, you know, I'm going to amplify that message from the LM and from the protesters and say, hey, you, you know, member of parliament or politician, I'm going to call you out. And then the politician may shift their their feelings a little bit and then change that legislation. Every single person along that continuum has a very, very important role to play in creating that change, in being making that transformation happen. Therefore, every single person along that continuum is a transformative leader. The, the moral of the story is transformative leadership does not happen in a silo. It happens best when we connect with other people. What we saw in Brampton when there was systemic racism within our school system and black children were being disproportionately removed from those systems. It was black women, it was usually black women who were out on the front line saying, not today. And we saw some major transformative changes happen because they worked as a collective. And there were some that were out there screaming and there were some that they were behind them supporting them. So to your question, Sophie, figure out where you are along that continuum because we're gonna need you. Selena's going to need someone who supports her. Selena's going, to, Selena's going to need someone who's not afraid to amplify her voice. Selena's going to need someone who's going to tell me what is going on um, and, and be the message carrier and all of those parts in between. But building that network, having the empathetic courage to be part of that network is what actually changes the world. It's ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Hopefully we could get past our egos to do it together. So thank you very much. Um, um, I have one quick question. Uh, you briefly mentioned it, but it is kind of related to it. You know, the so-called uh, latest protests in front of the hospitals. And, you know, like, I mean, you in your presentation and, you know, what we know, um, I am particularly worried about, uh, you know, racialized healthcare workers, you know, and the risk, the high risk that, you know, they will be particularly targeted by these protests. So I was wondering, you know, if you can say a couple of things about maybe how we can support them, you know, racialized healthcare workers. We, we just, we absolutely just need to support them. Like Canadians, you know, should be out there banging pots around these hospitals like just just we outnumber them the rest of us actually outnumber them so we should be out there making those safe lines you know locked arms safe lines and saying we outnumber you you cannot do this and it's not just about the racialized healthcare workers it's all healthcare workers these were our heroes a little while ago but now it's sort of it's it's like you know what happened after we found 715 indigenous children's bodies in a mass grave we didn't remember that it's now over 5000 why not right we just we we become complacent so we the 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 charge around transformative leadership is deliberate intention, intentional substantive action. And yes, we get tired. So what? If my ancestors got tired, I wouldn't be here.
Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, I see that, you know, folks are, uh, you know, running to other meetings yeah. uh, and it's 2, 2 p.m. So I think we can wrap it up. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Selena, you know, for taking the time for us. Uh, it was it was really an excellent presentation. Thank you so much. And thanks, folks, for being here again. Our next uh, session will run uh, on September Sorry, 30. Uh, it will be a panel on global vaccine inequity, equity or inequity. So, you know, thank you again for being here. We are so excited to, you know, uh, start SNED with such an excellent talk. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.